Let's um, have a prayer of thanksgiving. Lord, again, we express our gratitude to you, thanking you, Lord, that you are the one who provides for us. And Lord, that everything that we have belongs to you. And um, Lord, we're so grateful that you are such a generous God. And we also thank you, Lord, that you have um, given us this wonderful grace of being able to partner with you in giving to the church. So Lord, we thank you for everything that has been given to the church. We know, Lord, that money is no limitation for you. Um, and you can do anything you want to do, even without it. But Lord, we want to express our thankfulness that you have allowed us to bring um, to you for you to use. And Lord, we pray that you would use it for your glory, that you would take all the little things that we give and that you would um, make them bigger. Lord, that you would do impossible things like making, giving people a new heart. And um, Lord, those are all things that we cannot purchase or buy or give towards. Lord, we thank you that um, you help us so that we can give and support. Lord, make us a church that is so serious about the gospel. Make us a church serious about evangelism and missions. And um, Lord, we also thank you for where we have given. We pray that you would multiply all of those things that have been given. We think of the Don's ministry, think of TSCF. We think of those um, men who we've helped in seminary in India. Lord, use all of this to your glory, to the end that people would come to know you and that people would worship you who have not worshipped you before. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. And good morning to everyone on Zoom. And would you all, if you have your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we'll look at the first six verses. Now, this is um, a part of the, the life of Jesus where he goes back to his hometown and he's rejected by the people in his hometown um, because they are familiar with him and they use familiarity with Jesus as an excuse to suppress the truth about Jesus. So Mark chapter 6, verse 1 down to verse 6. This is God's word. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is, this, what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to such a divine work, your holy scriptures penned by Mark, um, superintended by the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that we are encountering you and your word. Lord, help us as we consider your word to consider it with reverence, with honor. Lord, help us as we come to it to come in submission, allowing you, the God of the universe, to have his way and his creatures. We ask that you do this by the power of your Holy Spirit. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, as I was saying, this is a story about Jesus going back home. And because they're familiar with him, you know the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Um, they take offense at Jesus because he's doing all of these wonderful things. And what they end up doing is rejecting him. And to help us follow along in this passage, um, I thought up three simple points. And it's all about what they couldn't. Number one, what they couldn't deny. Number two, what they couldn't believe. And number three, what they couldn't receive. And we'll start with what they couldn't deny. Look at verse two with me. And look at the questions and, and what kind of questions they're asking and what, they're in question, what their questions imply. Verse two, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? Question number two, what is the wisdom given to him? And question number three, how are such mighty works done by his hands? So point number one being what they couldn't deny. Have a look there. What can't they deny? Well, they're hearing him preach and teach. And question number one and question number two have got to do with how he is teaching and what he is teaching. So they ask these questions. Where did this man get these things? They don't know where it's come from. This is the carpenter who grew up among them. They know um, his mom and they know his brothers and they know his sisters. Where is this guy getting this from? They, they, they can't understand that an un, uneducated carpenter from Nazareth is teaching things in a way that they have never heard before. In other places in scripture, people marvel at the authority that Jesus preaches with. And so they ask that question, where did this man get these things? He surely didn't get it from his mom. He surely didn't get it from his sisters or his brothers. And he probably didn't get it from any of the the masters or the rulers of the synagogues at the time. This is otherworldly. They can't explain how Jesus is preaching and teaching the way that he is. And question number two is related. What is the wisdom given to him? Now, here's another thing that they understand. The thing that Jesus has is so different that it must be given to him. This is something that is not like anything that anyone can just pick up along the way. This is something that is given to him that they recognize is just out of this world. So they can't deny that Jesus is different from everyone else. What they can't deny is that Jesus teaches on a level that has never been um, taught at before. He teaches with an authority that has never been used before. He is totally out of this world. And question number three, they ask, how are such mighty works done by his hands? What can't they deny when they ask that question? Well, they can't deny that he has already done mighty works. And chronologically, as we look at this, the chapter just before this one, Jesus has performed wonderful miracles. They've probably already heard about Jairus's daughter. They've probably heard about the storm that was calmed, that was ravaged the sea, that fishermen were so scared of. They can't deny that there was a paralytic that was lowered down and Jesus healed him and he walked off with his bed in his hands. They can't deny that this is Jesus who cast out demons. They can't deny that he is a miracle worker performing things that no one else has ever performed. Now, point number one is what they can't deny. This is what they can't deny, that Jesus is not normal. They can't deny that Jesus is doing things that no one else has ever done. They can't deny that Jesus is 
separate from them in a category or by himself. They can't deny the eyewitness accounts that have come to them. They can't deny the people walking around who were paralyzed for their whole life. These are just facts and evidence of the work that Jesus has done, which no one can deny. So they can't just go, no, he's not a healer, because then here comes Joe walking down the road, and he's not supposed to be walking. He's supposed to be on a stretcher lying down, being carried. They can't deny what all of these eyewitnesses are bringing to them. They can't deny the truth about Jesus. They can't deny that Jesus is more than just a man. They can't deny all of the facts, all of the evidence, and all of the proof that point towards Jesus being more than just a man, that point towards Jesus being this man who fulfills all of these prophecies about being the son of God. Now they can't deny that. Verse two. Now, point number two is what they couldn't believe. Look at verse three with me. Verse three says, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now, what strikes me is what they couldn't believe goes right against what they couldn't deny. They couldn't deny that Jesus was doing all of these things, which pointed towards the fact that he was the son of God. Remember what miracles are always called? They're called signs and wonders. What does a sign do? It points towards something. And all of the miracles that Jesus performs point towards his identity and point towards what he will do. So these are things that sort of declare that Jesus is different. His miracles, the way he teaches, they couldn't deny that. But in verse 3, they couldn't believe it either. Not only could they not deny all of the truth, all of the evidence, all of the facts, but they couldn't believe it. And that really tells us that there is a difference between knowing something and believing something. Knowing something, to believe something, you have to know it. That is definitely the first part in believing something. You have to know what you're believing in. Um, otherwise, you can't believe in it. You go. So are you following me there? So knowledge has to be a part of believing. All right. So they, they had step one sorted. They knew the facts. They knew the evidence. They knew the story. They knew from the eyewitness accounts what was true. But they couldn't believe it. They couldn't move to the next step of faith. They remained where they were at step one. And now here's what they couldn't believe. And, and it, it shows in their questions. Look again at verse three. Look at the questions they ask. Is, this, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and the brother of Joseph and Judas and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? What they're doing here is here are all of these facts. And because they don't want to move to the next step of faith, which is knowledge, and then actually accepting the knowledge and then trusting in the knowledge, what they do is they use something as an excuse to not believe in what is obviously true. And their excuse here is, we know this guy. Now, we're familiar with this guy. I know his mom. I know his sisters. I know his brothers. This is the guy who was just a carpenter. So familiarity becomes like a suppression tool so that they don't have to move to the next step of, of believing. Uh, familiarity is like a, a suppression tool so that they don't have to actually trust what is obviously true. 
And um, here's an example of my experience. Um, I did a job where I was abseiling and we had to test an anchor that was in the ground. And you need two guys to do this because of a rescue plan. So me and another guy went down and the test takes about two hours and you don't have to do anything. You just set up the equipment and then you have to wait for two hours. And so you're just suspended for two hours looking at each other. And so I had the opportunity to um, share the gospel with this work friend of mine. And because we had two hours, he had enough time to ask a lot of questions. And I was able to answer a lot of those questions. Um, and then it got to a point where I sort of recognized that there was a pattern inside of his questions. He wasn't trying to figure out what was true and what was false. He was trying to figure out how he could sort of sneak around and find a loophole so that he wouldn't have to believe in Jesus. And as the two hours sort of came to a close, this was my last question to him. And it sort of ended the conversation. And I said, I said to him, if I could convince you that everything about Jesus in the Bible is true, and you could with no doubt look at it and, and agree with me that it's true, would you believe in Jesus? And his answer was no. Friends, the problem that these people in Jesus' hometown are having is not an intellectual one. It's not one, it's not one that has to do with brain power where they're going, okay, look, I, I can't really agree with the evidence. I can't really agree with, you know, the historical facts. I can't really agree with the eyewitnesses. This is not anything that they're worried about. They totally agree with it. They've come to the point where they've got all of this information and they cannot deny it, but they will not believe it. And that's where my friend was as we were suspended on the side of the cliff. Will you believe if you knew that everything was true? And he said, no. The fact is, these people do not want to believe in Jesus. And they use familiarity as a way to escape from believing in Jesus. What excuse can I grab at today? Well, I know his mum. I, I know that he's a carpenter. I know that um, he grew up here. I know his brothers and his sisters. You know, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? I knew him when he was running around in the synagogue. Who is he to come here and tell me all of these things and perform all of these miracles? And so they took offense at him. So they couldn't believe, but they couldn't at the same time deny it. And friends, that's what a lot of people suffer from. You know, in Western society here in New Zealand, we've had the privilege of having God's word accessible for the last 200 years that we've sort of been a nation. And we're so familiar with this thing. The States, they're so familiar with this thing. The UK, so familiar with this thing. Germany and France, so familiar with the Bible. Yet today, the sharpest declines in church attendance and in church membership are in those places that are so familiar with the word. And that shouldn't be surprising either. Do you remember at the crucifixion, who was crying out for the crucifixion? Those who had the Bible in their hands for the last 1,500 years. It was the chief priests and the Pharisees. You might remember when Lazarus, after being dead for four days, was in his tomb. And Jesus calls him out of the tomb. And he comes back to life. And there were some people in amongst the crowd because there were a whole lot of people there for a funeral. Some people ran back to the chief priests. And they said, look, Jesus has just, he's crossed the line that we sort of can't ignore anymore. He's not just bringing people back from being sick. He brought someone back from the dead. And the chief priests, they grab it at an excuse as well. They say, we can't have this. 
It's better that he dies so that the Romans don't kill the rest of us. It's better that one man dies so that the rest of us can live. And these were the people who had the Bible for the longest time. The chief priests, the one most familiar with it. So familiarity was something breeds contempt. Um, and then it goes on. Jesus, Jesus says, and he quotes in verse 4. Look at what he says. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And so the application there for us is, are you familiar with Jesus? Um, have you had access to him? Have you attended church perhaps your whole life? And yet you're at a point where, yes, you cannot deny all of these wonderful truths about Jesus. You, can, you cannot deny the historical fact, the historical evidence, and the biblical inspiration about Jesus. Yet you're at a point now where you still just won't believe. You won't move on from this information to trusting in Jesus. And so Jesus talks about <clears throat> how a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Um, and, you know, just an easy way to understand honor is to dishonor something is to treat it casually, to treat it like it's normal or nothing. To honor something is to treat it as if it's special. And so you can ask yourself that question. Is, is Jesus um, special to you? Or is he just, you know, let's go to Sunday. Let's hear the sermon. Uh, let's sing the songs. And, um, you know, let's move on so that we can get to Monday and get back to work. Is he just a normal part of life now? We'll move on to the third point. So point one, obviously, there are things they cannot deny. Point two, there are things that they cannot believe that are directly related to what they cannot deny. And point three is what they could not receive. Now look at verse five with me. And he could not do, or he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, when a person is in a situation where they cannot deny the truth about Jesus, yet they will not believe the truth about Jesus, they've gotten to a point um, like Pharaoh during the Exodus. Do you remember? Moses was going to him, hey, let my people go. Here's a plague. And then he sort of, you think he turns around, but then no, he goes, no, 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 you're not going anywhere. And it says there that God hardened his heart. When you're at a place where you cannot deny the truth about Jesus, but you will not believe the, the truth about Jesus, you're in a place of spiritual blindness and hard-heartedness because you will not come to him. And he says there in verse 5 that he could not do any mighty works. Now, it's important to understand, do you remember um, many times in Jesus' healing ministry, the person did not, exercise any faith at all he just healed him for example Jairus's daughter she could not express any faith she was not not even alive so Jesus did this healing without her having to have faith so what is it talking about here when it says Jesus could not do it what's well, not it's not dependent on the person's faith for Jesus to perform a miracle but when it says here that he could not do it what it's talking about here is that these people have got to that level of spiritual blindness and hard-heartedness where another miracle would not change their mind. You might remember um, in Luke, when Jesus tells a parable to his friends, he says, a rich man died and a poor man died, and they both went to the afterlife. One went to heaven and one went to hell in Hades. 
And the one who went to hell, he, he said to, um, he, this was his question, his request. Could someone just go back and tell my brothers so that they don't end up here with me in hell? Can someone go back and tell them? And this was the response that he got. You think that they're going to believe that a, if a dead man was raised to life, that they'll believe? He says, no, they have the law and the prophets. If they did not believe the law and the prophets, what makes you think they'll believe a resurrected person? And you see there that um, if you have this level of hard-heartedness, a dead person walking around is not going to change your mind. It didn't change their mind. A, a person who was paralyzed for their whole life walking around is not going to change their mind. It didn't change their mind. And these were the people who were most familiar with the law and the prophets. And they would not receive Jesus. And because of this, what, what couldn't they receive that Jesus could give? It says there, he could do no mighty works, verse 5. So they didn't get all of these mighty works. Why? Because a miracle's purpose is to point towards Jesus and to what Jesus does. What's another miracle going to do for these people? And do you see how terrifying that is? That if you're at this level, a miracle right before your eyes will not change your mind. If you knew all of the facts were true about Jesus, would you believe in him? Would that change your mind? And here's the most terrifying thing. If you do not accept all of these things, which you must accept about Jesus, that he was truly a man, truly born and raised, raised there in Nazareth, um, and then move on to a place where you trust him and give yourself over to him and trust in what he does and his life and his work and his death and his resurrection. If you don't do those things, the consequences, you will not receive eternal life the mightiest work that Jesus has ever performed. Jesus has done many mighty things. He created the universe. He was the agent of creation. That's mighty and powerful. We saw that in Psalm 19, the heavens declare his glory. Even more mighty than that is not making something out of nothing, but making something good out of something evil. And without trust in Jesus, without faith in Jesus, you will never taste peace with God you will never know reconciliation with God if you're in a place of hard-heartedness and spiritual blindness and you reject Christ the mightiest work that can ever be done for you will not be done so those are those three points they couldn't deny they couldn't believe and they couldn't receive and here's just something I'll clear up before we close in prayer is faith does not accomplish any mighty work. You must understand that. Faith does not accomplish your salvation. Faith does not accomplish miracles. Faith does not accomplish healings. Faith does not accomplish any mighty work. Jesus does all the heavy lifting. Jesus does the healing. Jesus does the reconciliation. Jesus makes peace between um, people who are sinners and a holy God. Jesus does all of those things. The part that faith plays is faith is the way in which you receive the mighty works that Jesus accomplishes. So friend, are you in a place where you obviously can't deny what Jesus has done and who he is? Um, but are you in a place where you have either rejected him in the face of that, or are you in a place where you have believed upon him 
for that because that is the difference between eternal life and eternal death. And we're in a society that is just way too familiar with Jesus. And where are you? Um, it's important that you think about that very seriously. Now let's pray. Lord, again, we're so thankful for your inspired word written by the Holy Spirit. And we thank you here, Lord, that we receive a very serious warning. Lord, help us as we consider these words. Lord, we know that we cannot deny the truth about Jesus. But Lord, we ask that you would help everyone here to believe in Jesus. And Lord, we know this is not an intellectual matter. This is an heart issue. And we know, Lord, that you are the one who takes away the heart of stone and gives the heart of flesh. And we ask, Lord, that you would perform that wonderful miracle so that people with that heart of flesh would trust in Jesus. Lord, we also are mindful um, that there are many things that should astonish us and amaze us, but there is really nothing that could amaze you except this unbelief. And Lord, as we consider again that sixth verse, that you were amazed, oh, Lord, what could amaze the maker of the universe except those that reject such a wonderful promise and such a wonderful invitation in the light of such awesome truth? We pray, Lord, that less and less people would amaze you so that more and more people would come to worship you. Lord, we also thank you that um, you didn't give up on us. You didn't look at these people from Nazareth and say, well, that's it. Instead, Lord, you went on and kept on teaching. And Lord, it's because of your wonderful um, mission that today, this morning, we could hear your word and hear from your word about your teaching. And so, Lord, would you continue to use your church as your instrument to preach the gospel and to lead people to Christ and to be signposts to Jesus? And Lord, we know that it's by your power that people will come to you. Lord, also, we pray for something that we don't pray for often enough. We pray for revival. Lord, that um, people would come to know you. And would you use a church as frail and as weak? Would you use people as weak as we find in ourselves here at Wish Church to display how powerful you are? Oh, Lord, we pray that you would bring revival, that people would come to know Jesus and that his name would be made famous all throughout here in West Auckland. We ask this. In Jesus' name, amen.